If you are looking to elevate your leadership and drive your nonprofit forward, I invite you to subscribe to the Successful Nonprofits newsletter. Every week, I curate exclusive shareworthy content that sparks inspiration, innovation, and conversation. From the latest trends to timeless advice, the weekly email newsletter is your all-access pass to a treasure trove of resources. But receiving the newsletter is not just about staying informed. It's also about getting our best content first. Subscribers get first access to our newest downloadable templates designed to propel your leadership and amplify your impact. And that's not all, my friend. We are constantly working on new ways to support you and your mission. So as a subscriber, you'll get updates on our latest projects, opportunities to participate in surveys, and a say in the topics that we tackle next. You will essentially get me as a consultant, coach, and confidant in your inbox, ready to help you navigate the challenges of nonprofit leadership. So if you're an executive director, board chair, or a nonprofit leader who believes in making a difference, join me as a newsletter subscriber. Visit SuccessfulNonprofits.com forward slash newsletter to sign up today. And now, friend, let me take you to the episode you've downloaded. Welcome to the Successful Nonprofits Podcast. I'm your host, Dolph Goldenberg. This episode is part two of the board recruitment series. It was originally taped as part of a 60-minute seminar presented at the Centerlink eSummit in the fall of 2019. We have broken it into two parts to make the material fit better into your busy life. So if you listen on a half-hour commute or while running errands, it fits into that perfect window that most people like to listen to podcasts for. In this second half, we will cover the board candidate vetting process, your board recruitment timeline, orientation of new board members, and of course, as the title promises, five hacks for a better board recruitment process. If you haven't heard part one, you missed some great material on identifying the gaps on your board, how to structure your recruitment campaign, and ideas for sourcing the best board candidates. So, you may want to listen to part one of this series, but if you don't mind getting your information without context or just really want to know the five hacks for a better board recruitment process, there is no law that says you have to listen to the first part before you listen to the second part. So, dear listener, let's jump right back in to the middle of the Centerlink eSummit presentation on recruiting new board members. Let's talk next about creating your onboarding and orientation process. I'm not going to speak a lot about this, but I do want to touch on this. I think it's really important as you're going out to prospective board members that you're able to say, this is what your orientation is going to look like. Now, there are typically two ways to approach board orientation. The first way is what I refer to as the fire hose orientation. So we all know that we're supposed to drink about 64 ounces of water every day, right? We're all supposed to get eight, eight ounce glasses of water every single day. If someone said, hey, Dolph, you're supposed to get eight, 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 eight ounce glasses and put me against the wall and then just poured a fire hose on me and said, hey, Dolph, there's lots of water here. I hope that you 
can get the 64 ounces of water that you need today. That's what the fire hose orientation looks like. That's when we say to new board members on Saturday, November 12th, we are going to have a board orientation. And we want everyone to come in for six hours, and we are just going to inundate you with more information than you can possibly absorb in one day. We're going to send you home with a big honk and binder that reiterates all that information. Gosh, we sure do hope this is useful for you. Now you should be a fully trained board member. Congratulations, you're on your own. Now, the other way to get that 64 ounces of water is to get a glass and to go to your faucet and to fill the glass and to drink that eight ounce glass of water. And that's the type of orientation that I recommend for nonprofit organizations. And so typically what that would look like is you would have three or four orientation sessions, probably of 60 to no more than 90 minutes each. A good way to structure that is to do it immediately before the board meeting. And so, for example, you know, again, keeping in mind that you have an annual recruitment campaign. So, you know, so all of your board members are starting at one point in time. They'll all have their first meeting at the same time. And so, you know, you could have one orientation session immediately before the first meeting. And oftentimes that orientation session will be on something like governance. You'll typically have some homework for them to do between that um, orientation session and the next one. Your next orientation session might be on programs. And again, that would be an hour to 90 minutes long. You could do that before your next board meeting. And then, of course, your final orientation session would be, um, or I guess, assume you have three, would be on finance and fundraising. Some organizations break that out, and they'll do a third one on finance and a fourth one on fundraising. But the whole point is that, again, you want to break this into digestible chunks so that people can sort of really take in the information and remember it. You also want to give people some homework between meetings that will help reinforce that information. And so, for example, if your first orientation session is on governance, and as part of that, everyone's supposed to join a committee, in that orientation session, you have people identify what committee they're going to join, and then they need to attend their first committee meeting between this orientation session and the second orientation session. So it's just really critically important that you develop an orientation that's going to make sense for your board, that's going to enable your board members to learn what they need to learn, and that's really going to bring them up to speed so they can be active, active board members. So now that we've talked about the orientation session, we have talked about building your candidate pool and building that pool based on what your needs and gaps are as a board and as an organization. Now let's talk about what that vetting process is going to look like. So the first thing, as I've already mentioned, you probably want to do an online application. It's cleaner. It's simpler. It's easier. Every now and then I will have someone say, you know, well, what happens if we have someone who can't use a computer? Okay, if for some reason they cannot use a computer, you could certainly just print it out for them and they could complete it. But trust me when I say that the online application is the way to go. The second thing are those interviews. And typically what I would recommend is that you schedule about 45 minutes or so for interviews. You don't have that many questions. You have about only four to maybe five or six questions. What you really want to try to assess is what their commitment is, what their actual bandwidth is, and, and feel free in the interview process to challenge people on that. And then, of course, you also want to make sure that they have the skills that you're looking for and the connections that you're looking for from your board. 
Now, you also may want to do some type, do some type of an assignment. We'll talk about that in a moment. And then also your references. So it's always a good idea to check references. We'll talk about that in a moment. So we've already talked a little bit about the vetting process in terms of the interviews, keeping in mind that you only plan four to six questions. There's going to be lots of follow-up questions. I would recommend, especially as an example, if you have more candidates than you actually have um, open positions on the board, I would recommend that you consider using a forced ranking sheet. You know, so if you've got 10 candidates and you only have four open slots on the board, you know, use the, use a forced ranking sheet so that every member of your nomination and governance committee, individually, they'll say, this is my first choice, my second choice, my third choice, my fourth choice, so on and so forth. And by doing that, it will become much clearer which folks you should be bringing onto your board. One of the other things that I always recommend is that you check volunteer references. This is sometimes controversial. Sometimes folks will say to me, you know, well, gee, if we put too many hurdles in place, is it likely that board, that prospective board members are going to get turned off? And, you know, it, it, it may turn off some board members if they know that you're going to be calling um, other executive directors and other board chairs and asking about prior board service. But, you know, you kind of want those hurdles there. The hurdles aren't there to deter candidates. The hurdles are there to help prove how much a candidate really wants it. If they're really committed to your mission and if they've been a good board member elsewhere, they're going to have absolutely no issue with you calling other organizations whose board they've served on or who they volunteered with. So some things to, you know, to think about when you are calling those board chairs or those executive directors of other boards they've served on is, you know, obviously, first of all, ask, hey, did the person leave in good standing? And did the person complete their term of service? So if they did not leave in good standing, you probably want to know that. If they left midterm, you probably want the story behind it. Um, if for no other reason than to make sure that the person is now in a place in their life where they have the bandwidth to fully serve on a board. This is also a great opportunity to ask if the person collaborated well with others. It, it is really amazing how one bomb thrower can really derail your entire board. How it can turn what, how that one bomb thrower can turn what had been really productive meetings into what just feels like horrible, agonizing meetings. And so this is a great way to start to screen for that and make sure that you're not bringing people onto the board that are going to be counterproductive to the work your board needs to do. Don't be shy also about asking about those growth areas for your board candidates. You know, th there, there are very few perfect ideal board members out there. Almost everybody's got some flaws, but don't you really want to go into this relationship knowing what their flaws are, knowing, oh, that it, when you send out an email, this person's not as responsive. This person also really needs to receive a text or this person also really needs to receive a phone call. And then just like we're going to ask about challenges and growth areas, also ask about where they excelled. Wouldn't you love to know, oh my gosh, this person was off the chain amazing whenever we had them talk to major donors or whenever we had them come in and present on behalf of the board at an all staff meeting. So, you know, this is not just about identifying their areas of weaknesses. This is also about identifying their strengths so that you can better engage them and utilize them as board members. And then the last step of the vetting process that I would recommend is that you check their social media 
And, you know, also, frankly, that you Google them. This is also one that's controversial. And again, this is something that I'm, I'm just not at all agnostic about. Imagine if you were considering a prospective board member and then you checked out their social media and you saw that they had made some transphobic comments on their Facebook page or on their Twitter page. Wouldn't you want to know that before they joined your board? Because frankly, that probably should be a disqualifying thing for a prospective board member if they're you know, on social media making transphobic comments. You want to be careful about what you do with that information, but it's good information for you to have, and it will certainly influence your decisions. So if you recall, I also mentioned the possibility of an assignment. And here's the radical idea that I'd like to um, share with you as part of your recruitment process. Imagine if you did your board orientation first. And imagine if that board orientation really was a three or four part orientation. So what would that tell you about prospective board members? So first of all, those folks that are going to flake, guess what? They're going to flake out pretty early. Those folks that, um, and when I say flake out, I mean those folks that are going to attend the first session and not attend the second or third session, or, you know, those folks who are going to attend the first session, but then not do any of their homework between session one or session two, or those folks that become completely non-responsive to email and text and phone. Wouldn't you want to know that first? So a great way for you to really allow candidates to demonstrate their commitment is to do that orientation first and then see who excels. And keep in mind, that's also a great way that you can see how people interact as part of a group. You know, you could maybe even then, if you do your orientation first, have kind of like a class orientation project where they come in and they do something at the center that is, that's a team building type of activity. I think there are lots of great reasons for you to be doing your orientation first. And the reason I call it a radical idea is not even that I think it's a bad idea. It's just nobody is doing it really. So give it a shot. See how it works. I promise you it will definitely reap dividends for you because you will put stronger people on your board and you will put many, many fewer people who flake out on your board. This is the point at which now, you know, you've pretty much developed your entire board recruitment process. And so then all you've got to do is pull the trigger and make that board orientation happen. So once you've implemented your campaign, and by the way, I'm speeding through that slide because, well, we've already talked about everything you need to do for, for your board uh, for your board recruitment process. What you then need to do is you need to notify candidates. This is an area where I think a lot of organizations fall short. They do a great job of notifying the people who are on the board, but they don't do a great job of following up with those individuals who did not end up on the board. There is no better way to burn a bridge with somebody than for them to apply to be on your board, for them to apply to be a leader in your organization, them to go through a process, go through an interview, allow you to vet them, and then they don't hear anything from you. So please make sure that we you follow up with those folks that don't get on your board in a compassionate way, um, but also, frankly, in an honest and truthful way. Be, be willing to be upfront, again, to the greatest extent possible, be willing to be upfront about why someone did not make it onto your board. 
One of the other questions I will sometimes get is, gosh, th this seems like a really long process. How long should this take? This process should take you less than 20 weeks, assuming, and, and so five months. So it, it's not the shortest process in the world, but five months or so, assuming that you also do not do your board orientation. If you decide to do your board orientation, and that's a, a three-month orientation period, you know, then you might be looking at closer to seven or eight months for the process. But so you might spend one to seven weeks really on the planning, because keep in mind, like with most things, the more time that you spend on planning, the better this is going to be. So, you know, as we walk as we walk back through that planning, it's looking at your needs and gaps analysis. It's making sure that all of your documents are put together that you're going to be sharing with prospective board members. You're going to you're going to craft a board orientation. You're going to be going broadly out to the community to really make sure that your networks are in, are in a good place to be able to be doing that um, inclusive outreach that you need to be doing. So all of that's probably going to take you about seven weeks. And probably around week eight, you'll be ready to launch your, your campaign, keeping in mind then that you'll need to leave it open for four or five weeks so that people have time to actually apply. Then you'll close your nomination process about week 13. You probably want to uh, vet candidates pretty quickly. So say you'll have one or two weeks for interviews and then one week to finish your screening. So checking references, that type of thing. And then, of course, you want to appoint your board members, which would, in the ideal world, happen immediately after that. And then, again, we're talking ideal world. You want to immediately notify both those folks who you are going to bring onto your board, as well as those folks who um, are not going to be coming onto your board in the next cycle. Now, I also promised you five hacks for an easier, more effective board recruitment process. So let me give you those five hacks. By the way, I think I've probably already said each of them. So this is really just me reiterating them. So the first hack is, this should be no surprise, you've heard me say it at least five times already, hold an annual board recruitment campaign. It is far easier to recruit people in five or six or eight and to then bring those people on the board in a methodical and organized way than it is in onesies and twosies. The second is to use LinkedIn to identify candidates. I just, I cannot say this enough. Most of us as nonprofits are not using LinkedIn nearly as well as we could be. The third is to make sure that you are reaching out to the employee resource groups and the business resource groups um, that are within your community. And those could be corporate groups. Those could be groups that are uh, professional service groups. The fourth is to make sure that you use an online survey for the application. It is so much easier. Most of these survey systems will also allow you to have the person upload a resume or upload a bio or other documentation that you may want from them. Um, and then the fifth, and this is kind of the radical one, but conduct your orientation as part of the vetting process. So those are your five hacks for a much easier, much more effective recruitment process. Um, by the way, this web, th this URL is not live yet. It will go live one hour after the close. But if you go to successfulnonprofits.com forward slash CLE 2019, that's CLE for Centerlink E 2019, then you can download the skills matrix, um, the recruitment profile, an application, and interview questions, 
All of them will be in a Word format or an Excel format so that you can customize them to meet your own needs. Now, um, I want to make sure we leave about 10 minutes or so for questions. Um, while you're at successful nonprofits, though, I want to make sure that you know about everything that we do. We've got a podcast. Uh, currently, it comes out every other week. Uh, we will be moving back to weekly starting in January. We've got a blog. We've got an email blast. We do all of those things at absolutely no charge. We do it to support the community. I will also share with you that as a consulting practice, um, and we're one of the few consulting practices that has a manifesto. We put it on our website. We only work with progressive organizations. And in our work with progressive organizations, we do strategic planning, board development, executive transitions, and coaching. Currently, my bandwidth is completely full. I'm not starting any new engagements until January, but um, but starting in January, I'll probably be taking on one, maybe two new engagements. That's the presentation in a nutshell, and I guess we've probably got about 12 or 13 minutes for questions. All right. Thank you so much, Dolph. This was amazing information. Often, you know, we we um, don't think about the, all the nuances that go into um, recruiting, retaining board members. So, so we really appreciate you giving this uh, this chat and and this useful information to all of us. We do have a couple questions. Great. Um, and so I'll start with a couple. Um, so one of them says for clarification. Did you suggest that all board members be included in all interviews for board for new recruit? I am so glad you asked that question. Um, I actually would not suggest that. And so I apologize if, if I said that. Um, I recommend you have a governance committee or a nominations and governance committee, and that those are the folks who would be involved in, in the interview process. Now, the governance committee may decide to add one or two additional board members uh, to help with the interview process, but really the core of, of your interview group is your governance committee. Wonderful. Great. Um, another question we got was, you mentioned that no new board member should be made an officer. What if someone comes to you with excellent references and experience? There's best practice and there's reality. If someone comes to you with excellent references and experience, well, let me back up. So let's look at two possible scenarios. The first is someone comes with excellent references and experience, but you already have one or two existing board members who would be great board presidents. Hey, you know what? You really want that person with excellent references and experience to learn the nuances of your board and to understand your board's organizational culture before they become the board chair or board president. So first go to those one or two folks who would make a great board chair and try to get them to step up. Now, worst case scenario um, is there is no one on your board who is who is fit and ready to be your board chair. Some organizations do find themselves in this position. And in that case, you, you have no other choice but to bring that new person on as your board chair, probably. But I just have to say it's not ideal and it and it's a much more painful way to bring on a, a, a new board chair. And frankly, it will also be more difficult for your board as well. Got it. Thank you so much. Uh, and then um, our, some of our next questions are, when a candidate is not chosen because of their social media profile, do you think that reason should be shared when you inform that person why they were not cho chosen? This probably applies to almost any reason. 
uh, about why you've not chosen a candidate. So you want to be as honest and compassionate as you possibly can be while also protecting the organization and any goodwill the candidate may have with the organization. So I also think it probably depends what specifically is on their social media that makes you think they would not be a good board member. But uh, I am a believer in trying to be as honest as possible with folks. You know, if someone had shared something that is extremely sympathetic to white supremacists on their social media profile, you know, I I would probably not have any issue. Or if someone shared something that was extremely transphobic on their social media profile, you know, I, I would probably not have any issue saying when we really looked at, you know, what we believe are your values as an individual and our values as the board, we just, we saw a gap and we just, you know, we just, we did not think that that would be a gap that we could bridge while you were on the board. And I'd rather be honest about it than to make someone feel good or or even feel like, hey, the way in which they, they are considering board service is an okay thing. Great. All right. Um, it seems like we have a lot of questions going on. Right. So hope you can stay on, Adolph, um, for a little bit longer. Um, one of our next questions says, how do you feel about family members on a board? No. Every time, every way, no. <laughs> so, and I can go a little more in depth, but the answer is no. Then there's a couple of reasons. First of all, um, you don't want natural voting blocks on your board. And, and no matter how independent people are, So it's not like it's always a voting block. You don't want natural voting blocks. You also don't want cliques, especially family members that live together. Um, You know, you, you, you don't want cliques on your board. And it's tough not to have that when family members live together. But the last reason is sometimes families fight. And sometimes families have drama. I, and the example I'll give is I love my husband. We have been together 15 years. But, you know, sometimes he and I may have a disagreement in our personal life. And if we were on the board together, that might bleed over. I, I could say, and by the way, my husband, not a member of Centerlink, so he won't see this. And he also never listens to my podcast. So I know he's not going to hear this, but it's the truth. I also love my sister. And she and I have, you know, sometimes can have disagreements. And, and that would bleed over to the board. So the answer is no. Every time, every way, no. The other thing I've got to say just while we're talking about families is I think that's also true for family members of people who are on staff. So whether that's a family member of your chief executive or or a family member of another staff member, that is an inherent conflict of interest. And, and that family member can't serve on the board either. Thank you so much for adding that last piece. That's wonderful. Um, and we hear you loud and clear. <laughs> um, so next question, how do you feel about uh, board members who term out then stay on the board in a different role? I don't understand that question. So from my perspective, if a board member turns out, terms out, they term out. Now, having said that, and, and this is something we've not talked about, but but it is something that I believe very strongly in is just as we have an onboarding process for board members, we also need to have an offboarding process. How many of us, and and for those that don't know my background, I I was a permanent chief executive for about a dozen years at two different organizations, and I've done, gosh, maybe um, four or five interim gigs at this point. So I I say this from experience, um, but how many of us have had a board member that rolls off the board because they term out they were a great board member. They were, you know, they did a great job of fundraising. They understood 
board governance versus staff management. You know, they understood their they understood their fiduciary responsibility. They were a phenomenal board member. They termed off and we didn't ever hear from them again. They stopped giving 18 months or two years later. Happens all the time. And it's because we don't have an offboarding process for our board members. So just as we need an onboarding or orientation process, we also need an offboarding process that allows us to keep board members involved, former board members involved, just not on the board. So when your board when that fantastic board member turns out, you need to have great things that they can do that really make a contribution to your organization and support your mission and keep them involved, just not on the board. Wonderful. And then finally, we have another couple of questions on diversity and inclusion. So I'll start um, with one of them. Do you have any other best practice recommendations in regards to diversity and inclusion for board recruitment and retention? My best recommendation is diverse and inclusive organizations have diverse and inclusive boards. And, and, it's, and it's a chicken and egg thing as well. If a board is not already done the work necessary to really understand and engage itself in, in DEI work and diversity, equity, and inclusion work, it's going to have a much harder time building a a diverse, equitable, and inclusive board. So my other best practice, you know, frankly, is, you know, the board has to do the work. The board has to be open and welcoming and understand the importance of DEI, you know, that 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 it we're that it's not just checking boxes, that it's building a stronger board by creating a more inclusive board. So that would be my first recommendation. My my second recommendation is the board needs to be out and active throughout inclusive and diverse communities. And so, you know, that undoubtedly means being at events, being at, you know, and when I say events, I don't just mean fundraising events, but certainly being at other organizations' fundraising events, but being at other organizations' events and in symposium and building the name of the organization. This is not something that happens overnight. And and I, I know I'm probably preaching to the choir when I say that, but this is just not something that happens overnight. Okay, great. And then as a follow up to that uh, question, we also have another question in regards to diversity and inclusion, which um, says, how do you assess your board representation of, of those communities? So, so I, I think there are multiple ways to assess it. Part of it obviously is quantifiable. And, you know, you can do that in, in your skills and gaps analysis. So, you know, so, so you are looking to see, um, you know, what, what, what is your, what is your trans representation on your board? What is your gender non-binary representation on your board? What is your representation of women, of people of color, of, um, of communities that you serve as an organization? So part of it, you know, frankly is quantifiable, but, but, you know, but I also think that how you assess that also will go beyond that. Um, but but I think that assessment happens, again, as your board is doing the time-consuming but important work ar around diversity, equity, and inclusion. Wonderful. And then finally, I know it's time, it's one o'clock, but um, I want to make sure we get through this last question, which is in regards to the recruitment profile, what are some effective ideas on how to share this document with the community for best results and recruitment of a diverse board? Uh, about diverse board? I believe the best way to share this information is in your recruitment profile. Um, it, the, your recruitment profile is not something that should be written hastily. Again, it is, it is only a one-page document. It needs to be carefully crafted, 
but really what you're going to be highlighting, uh, especially when it comes to having an inclusive and diverse board, are some of the specific needs that you have as a board, as well as the types of candidates that you are strongly encouraging to apply. By doing that, you're highlighting the high-level needs and gaps of your board um, without making the entire document public because you want a document that you're really comfortable as a board and as an organization being fully and 100% truthful with yourself about. And you don't want a document where you say, well, should we really put that on the skills and gaps analysis because, gee, you know, this, this document's going to go public. All right. Great, Dolph. Um, it's time. It's been a wonderful hour. Thank you so much for all your knowledge, uh, all your best practices that you've shared with us today. And um, for those of, of you that are still with us, I wanted just to give you a quick reminder that we still have a lot of other sessions available. Um, and you can go to www.lgbtcenters.org slash eSummit. And please make sure you check out our other eSummit sessions. Um, and, you know, and, and, and sign in. Wonderful. Thank you so much for being here with us today. Um, we thank you and see you soon. Hey, Anna, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to be here. Grateful thanks to a listener from Texas who shared with me earlier this week that the Centerlink eSummit page that I promoted in the episode was not online anymore. I blushed beet red when I realized this, and we have restored access to the page now. So you can go to our show notes at SuccessfulNonprofits.com to get the link to our eSummit page, which has all of the downloads that we mentioned in Episode 1. This is the conclusion of our two-part episode on board recruitment. I certainly hope you found it helpful, and I really enjoyed sharing it both on the podcast and also as part of the Centerlink eSummit back in 2019. I've been speaking at conferences more and more lately, and it's been a real joy of mine to be able to share knowledge with nonprofit professionals and also with board members. So hit me up if you are putting together a conference and would like for me to speak. And if you are wondering how to reach me, you will always find me at SuccessfulNonprofits.com. And as many, many listeners can testify to, I respond to every email that I get. Now, if you have received value from this episode, please do me a favor and do yourself a favor by sharing it with a board or staff member at your organization. When you spread this knowledge to colleagues, you make sure that your organization is stronger and more vibrant. And of course, I always appreciate your ratings and reviews on your streaming app of choice. It really helps folks find the episode, and once again, it helps spread the knowledge that we share for nonprofit professionals. That, dear listener, is our episode for this week. I hope you have gained some insight to help your nonprofit thrive in a competitive environment. I am not an accountant or attorney, and neither I nor the Goldberg Group provide tax, legal, or accounting advice. This material has been provided for informational purposes only, is not intended to provide, and should not be relied on for tax, legal, or accounting advice. Always consult a qualified, licensed professional about such matters.